Hence, I have received both vaccinations um, and I think there's a way in which um, things are starting to shift for me and maybe for many of you with this uh, um, sense of uh, a little bit of relief and um, maybe a little more freedom in terms of uh, being able to spend time with friends in still in safe ways. But um, I had my first hug in over a year, um, a week ago, and it was memorable <laughs> to see a friend and we had both been vaccinated. So there's that sense of coming back to life as well. And I wanted to um, weave in a film I saw last weekend Maybe some of you have seen it. It's uh, Kurosawa's movie, Ikiru, which um, is about a person who came back to life in a sense. And I'll also share a story from Hidden Lamp, a collection of uh, koans or stories about our women ancestors. There's one that relates to this theme. And then I will share a poem and see if we can do that all and leave time for some discussion at the end. So um, just in terms of Buddha's birthday, uh, which is a very joyous uh, celebration in my experience, um, often uh, part of one part of it is bathing the baby Buddha I don't know if you do that at Santa Cruz Zen Center. You do, yeah. And it's uh, so joyful to, uh, often the Buddha is uh, in a structure covered with flowers and uh, the birth of the Buddha was an occasion for great rejoicing uh, in the time, well, I think it was, um, this is all, um, legend you could say but um it was met with great joy and uh, the story is that the buddha was born out of the side of his mother um maya um, and he started to walk he walked seven steps and spoke i alone am the world honored one and um, I, and the meaning of that is not, not so much he, the Buddha himself alone was the world honored one, but each of us can be, uh, feel that sense of, of new life and rebirth and the Buddha in each of us that we are all Buddha. So at San Francisco Zen Center, uh, not last year, but in prior years, after the Dharma talk, which on Saturday, which is usually about Buddha's birthday, we would gather and families would join and we had parasols and streamers and we'd walk across the street to Koshlin Park and bathe the baby Buddha in the park. We had balloons. It was very, very festive and celebratory and we'd come back and have birthday cake and I wish everybody happy birthday because we were all being reborn in a way. So that's the feeling I, I really appreciate about 
this day. And I think that, you know, there's a possibility of feeling that sense of rebirth at different times in our lives. And what touched me so much about this film, Ikiru, um, is there anyone who hasn't seen it yet? If you raise your hand. Some of you have not seen it and it looks like a number of you have seen it. So some of this may be familiar and I don't wanna to tell too much of the story because if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it. Apparently it was one of Suzuki Roshi's favorite movies, which is one reason why we showed it, but also someone wanted to show it last Sunday because it was Easter and that sense of uh, re rebirth that comes with the Easter holiday. So some of us watched it in our dining room. We have a big screen and we were sitting socially distanced wearing masks. Um, and what was striking to me about this film was how the, the main character who is, his name was Watanabe-san, Kanji Watanabe, he was an older man. He lived in, his, in a home with his son and daughter, grant, his son and his daughter-in-law, his son was married. And he spent long hours every day uh, in an office, a municipal office with stacks of paper. And you see him behind these stacks of paper early in the film. And it's one of those offices that reminded me of some of Kafka's stories, um, just everybody um, very isolated and doing repetitive tasks. And at the beginning of the uh, film, he's in his office, he's the director of the office and a group of uh, people, mostly women come in and they wanna know where, who to talk to, how they can get a playground created in the part of the city where they live, where there's now, uh, there was a, a sewage leaking into a pool and they wanted it drained and then wanted to make that space into a playground. And they were shunted around from one office to another, never really listened to. And he heard that and kind of brushed over him. Um, and then he learned, so this is going to give away something that he learned that he had cancer. He learned it inadvertently that his doctor didn't tell him. His doctor said he had an ulcer. And somehow that uh, touched him in a way where he um, stopped going to his office for a while. And there were a number of things that happened that um, enabled him. He tried things he had never done in his life before. And then he decided to go back to work and to find a way to create that playground for this group of people in the city. And his colleagues had all kinds of reasons why it wouldn't work. And he persisted and uh, he got weaker and weaker uh, during the time this playground was being built, but it was finally built. And one of the scenes that I still see so clearly uh, 
just before he died, he was uh, in that playground on a swing as the snow was falling and he just seemed so peaceful. Um, and then his colleagues, there's a scene after he died where they're holding a more kind of a, it kind of reminded me of a, I haven't been to a, any wakes, but where people get together after someone dies and there's a lot of drinking and talking about the person who died. And um, in the middle of this, the people who had asked him or asked for this playground came into the midst of this group of bureaucrats, basically celebrating the life of Mr. Watanabe, wanting to offer incense on his behalf. And they, they were crying. They missed him. They appreciated him so much. And all of his colleagues were kind of baffled by that. And, um, but they, they vowed to change their ways. Um, and, and then maybe that's enough to tell about that film, but I think what was so striking for me was this, um, that sometimes closeness to death or awareness of death can sharpen our sense of meaning uh, and, and make us aware of how precious life is and to use the time we have as best we can uh, for the benefit of all beings. You know, he, I, I really see him as a bodhisattva. Um, and I think the pandemic may have done that, been that kind of experience for some of us. I know many people who are getting clearer on what they want to do with their lives uh, that maybe take, go back to school or um, deepen their practice in some way or move or, you know, there's lots of change happening now. And I think as people are slowly coming back to life and, um, and also thinking about at this year when most of us were pretty restricted in what we could do, where we could go, what, what is most meaningful and what do, is there something about this time that we value that we may want to keep in our lives going forward? And also what are some of the things we really miss that we want to reconnect with and people we want to reconnect with? I know um, people who are now, after a year being able to, to visit their parents or grandparents or children or grandchildren, and that separation has been very painful uh, to visit friends who live at a distance um, and share a meal together. So some of those things um, are, uh, I think, even more precious than they were before. You know, things I took for granted before. I, I had many trips planned to visit branching streams, sanghas, uh, part of my work when the pandemic started. And I was actually in Texas visiting three groups the first two weeks of March, 2020. And when I returned mid-March, I had to quarantine at Zen Center because I had flown back and, um, 
many things got canceled. I'm sure that's true for everyone here. Uh, so now as, as we get vaccinated, as maybe it's a little safer to do some of these things, what do we want to keep and what gives us great joy? Um, so the story that I want, want to share from Hidden Lamp is one of my favorite stories in this book. If you aren't familiar with it, this is what it looks like. And um, it was edited by Susan Moon and Florence Kaplow. And it took quite a long time to find 100 stories of Buddhist women over the, over the centuries from the time of the Buddha till recently. And uh, each one has a commentary by a contemporary woman teacher. Um, I don't know for sure whether Catherine has a story. Catherine Harris has a commentary in this book, but you would recognize many of the names of the women teachers who wrote commentaries. And um, the, the story that I'm going to share is uh, called Senjo and Her Soul Are Separated. Kathy is nodding, so you're familiar with this story. And uh, she, it's, um, I find it a very beautiful and compelling story. Um, and it seems relevant to what we're dealing with now. So Senjo, this, it's based on a Chinese folktale. And Senjo was a young girl when the story begins and the daughter of uh, her father's name was Shokan. And when she was a child, she played constantly with her cousin Ocho. Um, they were together so much that Senjo's father joked that one day he thought they would be married. And they believed him and they later fell in love and, um, and then Senjo's father told her that she would be marrying someone else. Uh, it's the time when marriages were arranged. Uh, and on hearing this, Ocho was so upset that he uh, left the village in a boat uh, one night and uh, he didn't, he just couldn't bear the idea that Senjo would be marrying someone else. And as he was uh, paddling this boat, he saw a figure running along the riverbank and, uh, and the figure was calling to him and it was Senjo. So she joined him, she jumped in the boat and they went a ways down the river and uh, made a new home for themselves in a village. And uh, not long after they had a child and then they had a second child and Senjo said to Ocho, I really want to go back and see my parents. I want them to meet our children. And Ocho agreed. So they headed back to their original village. When they got there, they pulled the boat up on the stand and Ocho says, let me go and tell your parents that we're, we're here. And um, so he went ahead, knocked on the door and 
Sanjo's father opened the door and was very surprised to see him and said, um, you know, my daughter has been sick ever since you left. And Ocho said, what do you mean? Uh, Sanjo has been with me all this time and we have two children. And as they were talking, Sanjo started walking towards the house. And then from a room in the back, this very pale woman who looked like Senjo got arose and started walking towards the door. And the two Senjos met and became one. And the story asks, which was the true Senjo? So if you think about that, um, what did it mean? Which was it? that they became one and what were there two? And, you know, was this um, Benjo, who was the dutiful daughter staying home and being ill, pining, uh, the real Senjo or the daughter who left and followed her love and created a family and, uh, were they two or were they one? You know, there's something that each of us can decide for ourselves. But I think what the story brings up for me is times when I haven't felt that I was my whole self because I was not owning part of myself. And that was for me many years um, after coming out as a lesbian early in my life and uh, being in a relationship it was in my early 20s. I worked in um, my first job after college. I was doing research in a psychiatric clinic for two psychiatrists. And I came across a diagnosis that said character disorder, homosexual. And I was really upset and thought, Oh, is there really is something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with this relationship? Um, just to put it in a time frame, that would have been uh, the early 60s. And that diagnosis stayed, uh, it, it, I forget the name of the, of the manual of APA, I think the American Psychiatric Association, that diagnosis stayed in the manual for quite a while. Um, and I doubted myself and our relationship ended. I, I ended it. And um, I uh, really struggled with my feelings about loving women for quite a long time because I later had not that long afterwards I went to social work school and was recommended that new social workers um, be in therapy so we could kind of really experience what it was like to work with a therapist and uh, and also you know get to know ourselves better. So I I found a psychiatrist who was male and 
the first thing he said was I would be cured when I was in a stable relationship with a man. So it took a while before I realized that that just wasn't true for me. And, um, and I began, times were also changing by then it was the late 60s, early 70s, and more people were out. And uh, anyway, I, I, I was able to reclaim that part of myself. I can remember my first uh, experience of marching in a pride parade. That was, I believe, the early 80s. But they were the gay and lesbian liberation uh, started happening you know, at the end of the 60s. And more people were um, um, I, I was able to talk about how talk about um, my sexuality and feel affirmed and um, begin to really own that part of myself. So and it released uh, just a lot of energy for me. So that story has a lot of meaning for me. And I think that's one of the reasons why at San Francisco Zen Center, it was important for me and others to form this uh, queer Dharma group, which has been meeting once a month for 11 years. And often it's a Dharma gate. It's sometimes people come to Zen Center through that. Uh, group and become residents and uh, or you know, deeply engage in practice. So um, I think that that story, I mean, if it, if it resonates with you in some way, there may be some part of your life and where you where you have felt conflicted and then sometimes there's a resolution and that's new energy. And it, it can have to do with, you know, being in a job that isn't really nourishing and finding a way to do something that you love more, uh, leaving a difficult relationship uh, and feeling whole. Or there's so many ways in which I think this story is relevant. So now in terms of uh, where we are, uh, coming, and I think it will be a while before we're really uh, able to move totally freely. Um, at San Francisco Zen Center, we still, our, our buildings are all uh, closed to the public still, and we won't have a Tassajara practice period this summer. So it's going to take a while before things uh, open up fully, but I, I think it's coming and maybe some of you are feeling a little tentative about venturing out after a year of sheltering in place um, and, you know, trying to figure out what's comfortable, what's not comfortable. So I just wanted to end with a poem and uh, and then see if there are some questions, comments, discussion. So this poem is called My Window Rattles. 
What will it be like? The first kiss on a cheek, the first embrace. This week, the anniversary of a year of restraint, touching only the clothing I pull on in the morning, the kettle, a serrated knife, my pen, keys. This March morning, wind rattles the panes of my kitchen window. Through the glass, tender leaves quiver on a sycamore's slender branches. What will it be like to walk up Page Street without a mask, to smile at neighbors, see their smiles? How will it be to hold Noah, born the first day of this year? His parents trust there will be a future he will leave, live into. I spread avocado on a homemade sesame bagel, hear the cause of a crow, the hum of a plane. The city awakens. We gingerly emerge from quarantine. Last year, we drew in. This year, we will slowly open. Beings are I vow to save them. The illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. 